Dr. Somi Javed is a board-certified OBGYN and pioneer in the women's sexual health care space. She founded HerMD, a female-forward, insurance-based women's health care center to help educate, advocate for, and empower women to take control of their sexual health. Recently, HerMD raised $10 million in their Series A fundraise to bring their unique healthcare model to women across the U.S. So today on the Pulse Podcast, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Somi Javed. Now, here on the Pulse Podcast, we like to start off by asking our guests to share something interesting that our listeners may not know about them. Is there anything interesting about your background that comes to mind? Yes, I'm a world traveler. So I have been a lot of places and I like to hike everywhere I go. So I've been to South America and Africa and Bora Bora. So I want to see the world. We are really excited to have you because of the mission of HerMD focused on female healthcare specifically. It's a category that traditionally hasn't had as much dedicated interest, both from funders as well as practitioners. But more recently, there's been more trends with other health tech and femtech startups focusing on the issue, targeting women specifically. So before we get started to HerMD, we'd love to understand what motivated you to found HerMD in the first place. So um, it was a mission for sure. I had a very traumatic personal experience um, with women in healthcare, and that was the moment that I decided that I was going to be an advocate for women. I'm nearly 47 years old, and when my mother was 45, she almost lost her life um, to cardiovascular disease. And I was pre-med at the time. I was 21, um, just finishing up at Northwestern. And she presented with weeks-long chest pain, shortness of breath, arm pain, and had already lost her mother and her sister um, under the age of 50 to sudden cardiac death. But science at the time and her physicians couldn't explain how a thin, non-smoking, very active young woman would ever present with four-vessel disease. And I think what bothered me the most though is how she was being dismissed. She was telling them, I have chest pain, I have this family history, and they would pat her on the head and say, oh, it's it's your kids are stressing you out too much, or you need to cut back on your caffeine. And her EKGs were abnormal. And I, I knew this, and I even brought this up to the cardiologist, and, and he said, no, it's fine. She's a woman. Like uh, The EKGs look different. She ended up becoming very unstable at a cardiac catheterization that was finally ordered and underwent emergent quadruple bypass surgery. And I'll never forget, they robbed us of the time of, you know, when someone goes in for planned surgery, you get to see the person, you get to say goodbye, you get to say, you know, I wish you well, or I'm praying for you. And because she was emergently taken back, we were robbed of that chance to do that with my mom. And the next time I saw her, you know, she was being wheeled out of surgery attached to tubes and IVs and monitors. And um, it was crazy. And to think, you know, we found out that her LAD or the what they call the widow maker was 95% occluded. Um, and the surgeon said that she likely would have not survived if the heart attack would have come. And so, you know, we're very fortunate. She's alive to this day more than 20 days later. Um, but it was that moment that I was like, that's it. I'm going to be an advocate for women. And so went on, yeah, to medical school residency and, and decided to take care of women. You had planned to become a doctor at the time that this event happened, but it was really this personal experience that led you to understand how there was a gap in care specifically for women. And is that what drove kind of your specialization and your career focus since then? So that's where it started. Um, that's what opened my eyes to the true gender disparity that exists in healthcare. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be an advocate and became an OBGYN because I loved the mix of surgery and the dedication to taking care of women. But then I, my eyes were opened up even more. You know, our healthcare system is so broken. I was seeing 50 patients a day. You have no time to eat or go to the bathroom to take care of yourself, let alone be an advocate for anybody. And during these visits, you know, my eyes were opened because I felt like a failure. Here I was a doctor and I felt like a failure. I wasn't helping patients with stigma and taboo topics. They would talk to me about, you know, I've been through cancer and now I have no sex drive or sex hurts or menopause is driving me crazy. And I was practicing what I call doorknob medicine. My hand was always on the door 
because nurses and MAs were always reminding me, well, you have six patients waiting. And it's because, you know, insurance systems reimburse so low. Doctors are forced to see way too many patients. And it's a such a loss to both the providers who went in with such genuine intentions and also for the patients. They're getting really subpar healthcare. And so after doing this for a while, um, just shy of my 40th birthday, I said, and I'm going to keep this promise that I made to my mother and to myself that women deserve better. And looked for a couple jobs that would allow me to have longer appointment times, to practice medicine in a beautiful setting, to subspecialize in menopause and sexual health. And everyone said it would never work. And so my father gave me a piece of advice that I'll never forget. He said, if you can't find a door that's open, he was like, build your own door. And uh, that's what I did. I bought a building and opened a practice and that's where it started. I love hearing you describe your story from understanding the gap, seeing it yourself in the system, and then realizing that a lot of avenues weren't open at the time. And so it made sense to design your own. Now, when you first started practicing, were you in a larger provider system? Was it an academic medical institution? And did you explore other private practices? Like, I'm curious just what the provider landscape looked like when you were looking at options that would give you more time with patients and give them better care. So I tried, it's so funny that you asked that. I tried every type of setting that was available at the time. So I did a hospitalist type setting because I'm a mother of three. I was also looking for work-life balance and maximum job satisfaction as well. And, you know, a hospitalist setting is where you just go in, you do your hours, you go home. I did that for a few years and the hours were great, but the job satisfaction was horrible, right? You get no continuity of care. Um, and for those of us who truly love to practice medicine, it's just not fun. And then I went to a large private practice and uh, did that for a very, very long time, but wanted to give up the obstetrics to really concentrate on these GYN issues. And then went to a hospital academic setting where I was a professor, thought I would love the education and the teaching, but that's very much where I felt like a square peg in a round hole because I was trying to develop these sexual health programs and these menopause programs. And they just couldn't see it. And they wanted me to stay. I had the highest patient satisfaction scores. But when you have your colleagues telling your patients testosterone is going to give you a stroke when that's not true, because they didn't understand the data, they hadn't gone to the conferences, they weren't practicing the same evidence-based medicine I was. And it's not something we learn about in residency and medical school. You can't practice medicine in that setting where you're not supported by your colleagues. And so I tried every type of door and option that was available at the time. And that's why I knew I had to create something else. The other piece that stuck out to me from what you said is this focus on menopause and sexual health and the fact that when you're going through medical training and residency, this is not a focal point of what is discussed. And also that in modern day and even more recently in the past, these are topics that are stigmatized. And I think a lot of women have difficulties actually even talking about this with their providers. And so I'd love to understand what brought you to be interested in this topic and what these specific areas, the care level, the quality looked like before you started her MD. Pretty barren. Um, you know, I, I went to a accredited four-year institution for residency and someone asked me the other day, how much dedicated time did you get towards menopause? I said four weeks and they were shocked. So it's a four-year residency program. And in that time, as a gynecologist, um, a month of menopause training, you can't learn anything in a month. And uh, sexual health was there uh, twofold, to help treat diseases or infections and to help either people get pregnant or prevent pregnancy, right? That was it. There was nothing about orgasm, arousal, sexual pain, pleasure. We didn't learn anything about that. And that's, so it was pretty barren, both in residency and medical school. Um, and there weren't a lot of practices that were offering that. So I got involved with some national um, societies, North American Menopause Society, an international society for the study of women's sexual health that truly teach evidence-based medicine. They're involved in research and then offer cutting edge technology. Um, I did some preceptorships um, with some, you know, now mentors in the, in the field and did all of this on my own time 
and my own dime, uh, you know, and got all this additional training. And um, that was the basis of her MD because there was such a taboo. Women don't talk about it usually with their mothers, at least my generation, they didn't. And there wasn't a lot out there. So there was this disservice to women. And even now, you know, I did a TEDx about this. There is such a gender disparity when it comes to sexuality. You know, everyone knows what ED is. Women know penile implants. They know the anatomy, but they don't understand their own disease processes, their own anatomy, their own options. And currently in the United States, there are 26 medications to address men's sexual dysfunction and only two for women. And so we have a lot of catching up to do. And a lot of it I do blame on providers in the medical community. We've done a very poor job, not only educating each other and ourselves, but also then our patients. And so there were all of these barriers to getting really good menopause and sexual health care. And so, and you asked me one other thing, like what drove me to do this? My patients. When you have people in the room with you and you are, it's such an intimate setting and you're looking at them in the eye and they're telling you how their lack of desire has either blown up their marriage or their husband has left them, you feel helpless and, and you have such a calling and such a duty as a physician to help them. And I just could not ignore my patients anymore. What did the insurance aspect look like when it came to? care or reimbursements around menopause or sexual health that was beyond infections or preventing pregnancies? So, you know, any provider, and that's why my mentors, most of them are cash-based, the reimbursements are pretty poor. You get paid not very much um, to take care of a patient because these visits take an hour. So by the time you pay your nurse, your medical assistant for your software, your rent, your lighting, you're lucky if you walk away with 10 cents on the dollar. It's, it's almost cost prohibitive. And so that's why you see the super specialists in these fields. They're either cash or concierge. Um, and so that was the other um, really difficult business uh, point that I had was, how am I going to make this work within an insurance system? Because for me, that was a barrier I was not going to put up for women. Now, I'm interested in learning more about HerMD's offerings. So can you describe for our audience what HerMD's initial offerings look like and what that's evolved into to present day? So I knew we had to infuse cash into the system beyond insurance-based systems. So we are a general gynecology office. We do bread and butter annuals, contraceptive visits, abnormal bleeding. Um, And then we also offer a super specialty in menopause and sexual health care. But we offer ultrasound and surgery in the offices. So we do procedures to um, get rid of fibroids. We do procedures to help with heavy bleeding. We perform imaging and phlebotomy in the offices. And then we also offer cash-based gynecologic services. And what do I mean by that? There are radiofrequency and CO2 procedures that help with sexual pain, that help with incontinence. And these procedures are minimally invasive. They're not covered by insurance, so they're cash-based, but they give patients a modern, minimally invasive option to take care of sexual pain and incontinence. And so we offer all of those. And then on, and then we have a full-blown medical spa that is run by other providers, a whole other set of providers. And we offer cool sculpting, lasers, fillers, Botox, all of the aesthetic services, because if you look at the aesthetic industry, it's one of the most rapidly growing industries in medicine. The focus on the core OPGYN specialty, but then also branching out to offer a specialization on menopause and sexual health beyond infection management and contraception, but then also adding on these ancillary services. Now, HerMD also has brick and mortar clinics. I'm curious how you've thought about telemedicine and whether it's currently a hybrid model where you have the in-person care, but also offer telemedicine and how you think about scaling given the model of business operations. Yeah. So, you know, I've been taking care of women for 20 years and telehealth was great and really saw the benefits during COVID. Uh, I think a lot of physicians did. We were doing it before, but then watched our uh, appointments increase markedly during COVID because people weren't leaving the house. 
But there are limitations in gynecology, sexual health, and menopause. There are side effects from medications like abnormal uterine bleeding. There are sometimes, you know, fibroids or cysts or tumors. And so you cannot completely take care of a woman um, in these fields without seeing them in person. And so what we're doing is building our brick and mortars and then surrounding our telehealth offerings in surrounding states so that if women are able or need to come in for an exam, they are able to, and they're going to be directed to the closest brick and mortar location. And I think a lot of the other telehealth companies are having to partner with other very large organizations where they don't have quality control and her MD has eliminated that problem or, and we're working on eliminating that problem because all of our patients will get the whole cycle of care with her MD providers. And as you think about moving across state lines, how does the regulation and if there are any shifts during COVID with temporary authorizations, how has that shifted the ability to actually provide that care across state lines? So over 40 states had waivers um, during the pandemic, making it very easy to stand up telehealth locations. And we saw HerMD in Ohio and Kentucky now has pulled from 35 states. Think about that. Our two locations have pulled from 35 states. So, you know, it made it easy. A lot of those waivers now are going away. There are compact licensures. So there are um, many, many states, over 20 of them, that if you hold a license in that state, you can apply and it will be honored by those that are in the compact. So that is happening um, and multiple states are joining and making it easier. But there's still, because we are an insurance system, we still have to get enrolled with the insurance system. We still have to set up our business in each state. So that has slowed down the process more than what I have wanted um, because the demand is there. Patients are asking, I was in New Jersey this week scoping out sites and they're like, when are you coming? We're waiting for you. So it's a lot of legalese before we stand up in each state. Interesting to see where those regulatory trends might shift as we start moving to a model where we're living with COVID instead of putting up novel legislation in response to COVID. I think the one benefit, though, that did happen with insurers is they used to pay a very nominal fee for what they considered telemedicine, like $10 or $15. Can you imagine for a visit? You can't, that doesn't even cover your cost as a provider. Um, but they did offer something called parity, where they were then offering whatever you would get in office um, for the same level of care on telehealth. And so that hasn't gone away. And I do not anticipate that that will go away. And so if you want to talk about a silver lining that happened in medicine, um, that's a nice one. Now, the other interesting thing you mentioned about HerMD's offerings is the kind of expansion to ancillary services. And I also see that weight loss and kind of you mentioned incontinence, but these aspects about female care is also something that is within the HerMD umbrella. So I'd love to hear you describe the rationale and thoughts behind where there are synergies or how you think about the overall mission and orientation of HerMD, given it's not only focused on providing this healthcare in a traditional sense, but also thinking about managing perhaps more broadly female health. So we had uh, someone come into the offices who was helping us um, with some of our algorithms and our proprietary um, care modules. And uh, she brought up something very interesting. 80% of our patients during her visit brought up weight loss. And it's something that just naturally goes hand in hand when, when you're taking care of women. They want to look and feel better. Um, weight gain in this country, you know, and obesity is a huge problem, leading to secondary problems like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and cancers. And so if you are truly taking care of female patients, and you're talking about these very sensitive topics anyway, menopause, sexual health, I mean, weight gain... Also, when women are uncomfortable, there are so many studies that show that that will also lead to decreased libido. When they look and they feel better about themselves, it increases confidence and it leads to one less barrier in the bedroom. And so this was also very patient-driven. They're coming in and asking. And so weight loss for us is very just FDA-approved medications, getting them hooked up with nutritionists that specialize in that. 
So we're doing very mainstream FDA approved medications. We're not doing the HCG diet. You know, I don't believe as a practitioner that's safe. I don't believe it's sustainable. Um, we're not pushing any crazy fad diets. We do talk about intermittent fasting and lifestyle changes. Um, we don't even use the word diet. I, I don't think that's that's healthy. Um, and then the other services, you know, we found that when women feel better, they want to look better. And it just goes hand in hand. And I see the spa is empowering women to look and feel their best. But also that cash-based revenue really supports and allows those longer GYN visits. I mean, for patients, we are we can offer for some visit type 60-minute appointments. Where do you hear about that in an insurance-based system? You don't. And so that really has been a key differentiator for us at HerMD. Given the scope of the services you offer, how do you think about who your competitors are and how you stack up with these competitors? I'm thinking about all the different segments, whether it's aesthetics or peace with the spas or kind of the more traditional weight loss programs like a Noom, and then your brick and mortar providers and incumbents as well on the OBGYN space. Yeah. So I think, you know, the biggest competitor you think of is TIA you know, because they're trying to do brick and mortar and um, they're also doing telehealth and Genev and Electra. And you hear of all of these um, companies popping up. And, you know, when we went through fundraising, what made us so appealing were the only insurance-based system. I mean, some of them, they do take insurance, but they, they demand some type of membership or some type of contract. We don't do that. So we were truly the only insurance-based system. And then if you look at all of the other companies, we were the only physician-founded company. Uh, all the rest were not. Now they have all hired you know, either CMOs or um, advisors, but none of them were physician-founded. So if you want to talk about mission-driven and having 20 years of experience in those rooms with patients and hearing firsthand their pain points and their desires and their needs and what they expect in a uh, provider visit, I had that unique um, lens that I offered to her MD. Now, talking about physicians and reflecting on your own experience as a practitioner who faced multiple challenges when you were exploring different provider settings from an academic medical setting to private practice, et cetera, how do the physicians at her MD, what's their experience? Can you describe a little bit about what the practitioner experience or what that layout looks like at HerMD? Our providers are so happy. They've usually come either from a uh, very busy private practice or from a hospital system. So when they meet us, they realize that we've fixed two of the problems in medicine. We not only have fixed the time sink with patients, you know, the not being able to see patients, you know, and patients being frustrated. But the provider aspect too, that's just as frustrating for us when we're forced to see 50 patients a day. And so our providers are valued. Um, they, they get to know their patients. They feel like I had someone say the other day, I feel like I'm hired for my brain rather than my data entry skills. Um, and it's a warm, welcoming environment. Um, we have stand-ups weekly. We have monthly provider meetings. Um, we stay uh, in touch, you know, with all the latest, greatest uh, evidence-based medicine. We go to conferences together. So we are a very tight-knit um, community, rapidly growing, you know, because we're recruiting for all of these markets. But yeah, the provider experience is something very different. They describe it basically as what they went to medical school or nurse practitioner, you know, training for, that I finally have the environment and the tools given to me to practice the type of medicine I had set out to practice all those years ago. Speaking as a physician founder, you know kind of the ins and outs of where there are inefficiencies and where providers have dissatisfaction. I'm also curious if you've seen burnout as a trend. You know, with COVID, a lot of practitioners who performed in traditional hospital settings, perhaps even outpatient clinics, have faced burnout because of the rise in demand for care. Has burnout been a factor of discussion at HerMD or how have you seen that manifest in the providers that you've come to cross and hire? 
I mean, there were stress levels even at her MD during the pandemic. It was something that I had never experienced. You know, insurance companies didn't help us at all. They continued to delay payments like they do. And we were strapped with so many additional costs, if you think about it. I remember spending thousands of dollars just on PPE to stay open and and then still dealing with insurance delays. And so there were even burnout in our really provider-centric offices. And But we did things. We did monthly um, get-togethers. And sometimes it was a Zoom hour, you know, together where we had a drink and we just socialized. Um, and as, you know, things got better and we got immunized, we actually went on a retreat together and we took the entire team. Um, and it was all to balance mental health. That's very, very important to us. We do weekly lunch and learns. We um, do group nights out to make sure that everyone is feeling well and good and safe. But no, I experienced provider burnout myself. I wrote a piece for Kevin MD about how I was losing track of my own healthcare while building this healthcare company. I gained 20 pounds. I was drinking, you know, more wine than I normally do. I wasn't exercising you know, because I was tasked with running a company, taking care of patients, making sure my employees were okay. And then all of a sudden, all three of my children were home. And um, having to manage all of that as a human being was very, very overwhelming. But I think the difference at HerMD is it's a safe place to say, I'm not okay. I need some time off. I need you to build some breaks into my schedule. Um, and that's what really makes us different. When I was at university, um, I remember getting a letter and it wasn't even addressed to me. It was like employee ID number. And you'll never get that at HerMD, right? We know each other very well. So that's, that's the difference. We're not perfect. We're working on it, especially as we're rapidly growing. But the burnout also, we've seen the rise in number of applications to HerMD also increase because people are like, this is how we were treated by our hospital system or by our private practice. I'm done. Like I have heard wonderful things about you. Um, I want to join this, this practice. And I read an article, I'm sure you saw the same thing. I think it was in Forbes that 70% of the workforce that existed in healthcare at the beginning of the pandemic will not be in healthcare anymore by 2025. I have watched so many of my colleagues leave direct patient care and go into pharma or research or some other division of medicine, but can't do the day-to-day -day anymore. Now, pivoting onto the patient efficacy side, I'm curious how you track patient results and outcomes and how you measure success for patients when they do go through a course of treatment at HerMD. Yeah. So that's funny that you um, mentioned that. So that is, those are all initiatives we're launching right now. We are collecting reviews with patients, I believe through um, BirdEye, but I'm not sure because this is not um, the division that I'm handling. So every patient gets a link to how their visit was, how satisfied they were. As far as medically patient outcomes, we are continually doing research. So we just looked at all of our patients that struggle with hypoactive sexual desire disorder and did a retrospective chart review at 500 um, patients. And we looked at all of their outcomes and saw that our outcomes are greater um, than the average office by a significant percentage because of our multidisciplinary approach we take to HSDD or low libido. Um, in women. And so that's another metric we're using. And then we are introducing some other ways to measure provider success with patients, provider satisfaction too, because that's just as important to us. So those are all initiatives that we are finally putting into place as we are growing from two locations to hopefully 15 brick and mortar by the end of 2023. And when you collect these metrics for patient satisfaction, but also on the medical efficacy side, do you use this also to get more adoption from insurers? I'm also curious you know, how you were able to build the initial attraction because you're an insurance-based model as well to the cash. So the insurance piece is still a battle every day, I will tell you. Um, I am using a lot of our media attention and write-ups about us to get the insurers' attention and to help them understand what we do differently, that we are not just another GYN clinic. So I'm still working on the insurance piece. I would love to say that I have it all, but our reimbursements are nowhere near um, where they should be right now. 
and we're working on that with them. So as far as, you know, using these metrics, absolutely. So we have just um, adopted a new um, practice management system and a new EHR, and we're paying very close attention to data mapping so that we can extract the objective measures that we need readily so that we can have the proof points to push some of this so that some of these, for example, the laser that we use in our office, the CO2, Health Canada has approved it for incontinence and genital urinary syndrome of menopause, right? Health Canada is their version of the FDA. For us, I think we've got some generic FDA clearance tissue regeneration. Like, what does that mean, right? We're never, ever, ever going to get anywhere with the insurance companies. They're going to continue to call these cutting-edge, minimally invasive treatments experimental and avoid, you know, coverage. And so um, I've done clinical research, and I will continue to do that for all of these treatments, even if it's pilot studies, to get larger studies. But eventually, yes, that is a long-term goal is to leverage the data we have, think about it, under one umbrella, all of that data, to then push insurers um, and push FDA clearances. So yes, that is one of my ultimate career goals. That's what I'm that that's where my focus is shifting rather than day-to-day patient care, is how can we leverage all of this data we're going to have and use it for patient benefit. Given all the challenges you described about working with insurers, helping them understand what exactly it is that HerMD is doing differently to provide better healthcare outcomes, can you explain the rationale behind pursuing an insurance-based system of reimbursement versus perhaps like ATIA or other startups that we're seeing pursue more a direct-to-consumer model or partnering with employers to get additional reimbursement? For me, there are just so many barriers to healthcare. And we get daily messages, emails through social media. You've got to help us. You've got to help us. We're coming to you because we can't afford anything beyond our insurance. And so I did not want socioeconomic status or someone's income to preclude them from being able to have access to her MD. And, you know, we still don't take a hundred percent of insurance. We can't because some of it is still cost prohibitive. So, but we take almost, almost everything. And I just could not stand up another, another barrier. Um, And that's why I am so committed to taking insurance because I, face-to-face with patients, I know the women that barely, barely can scrape together the $20 to make their copay. So these membership models, these cash models would not work for them. And I don't want to limit access to HerMD for that. Access is a piece that has also gained more attention and something that you mentioned as well as part of HerMD's approach to providing care. Can you expand on how her MD is bringing greater access to women beyond sort of working with insurers, but thinking about access more broadly and what the gap is and what her MD is doing to broach that gap. So I think, you know, beyond the insurance, we are also going into markets that have, um, I don't know, people, someone once said, why are you concentrating on flyover cities or flyover states? I I was giving a lecture in New York and they're like, why are you in Ohio and Kentucky? And I said, well, there are women there that have these issues. And so I think, you know, we're really concentrating on, I don't know if you want to call them tier two cities, you want to call them flyover states, but I think we're very dedicated to bringing healthcare where other people are ignoring these states, these women. And I think that's another way that her MD is different. We're concentrating on completely different markets than other people, knowing that these women traditionally have to travel and, you know, that's yet another barrier, right? Having to travel to get this type of healthcare. Um, and so we're trying to eliminate that. So I think that's another way. And then a lot of the education that we do at HerMD, we partner with a lot of like-minded brands, which are direct to consumer, but we have done free summits, patient facing and provider facing, right? To limit the gap um, in this type of healthcare. We do events on sites. So we will continue to do that. And we invite pharma companies, we invite laser companies so that patients not only learn from our providers, but then they get to meet hands-on with these pharma companies to learn about the latest, greatest medications. They get to learn about the latest, greatest lasers, whatever is out there cutting edge. 
And we do this by support of these pharma companies that will um, support us and allow us to do this for free for our patients. And so these are all ways, you know, education, empowering advocacy, that we are eliminating barriers. A lot of barriers are because, you know how many women say to me just this week, I had no idea there was a medication that existed for low sex drive for women. The medication has been on the market for seven years. And so that is the way that HerMD is very, very different. You don't see, I'm starting to see some of it now, but we were doing this years ago, you know, these free educational summits and talking about these topics. That's wonderful to hear. And I found it especially interesting when you described the way you're thinking about targeting where to open clinics or where there may be more unmet need versus a more metropolitan area like New York City or Los Angeles where there's more density of population and in some areas, higher disposable income levels to pay for ancillary services that aren't traditionally covered by insurance, but that that may not be actually addressing the core need in the U.S., And you also mentioned starting potentially 15, building to 15 clinics. So can you speak a little bit about how you think about expanding? What sorts of criteria are you looking for? Which next cities or states are you targeting? So some of it's proprietary. (laughs) Some of it I'll share with you. But we have developed a very, very um, elegant algorithm looking at specific demographics in sexual health care, in menopause, in a typical per MD patient. Because remember, when I went into fundraising, it wasn't a business plan. I had already been open for a couple of years. So we had numbers, we knew what was working, and we knew and understood who the her MD patient was already. Spending habits, longevity, you know, what brings them in, we knew all of this because we were already open. And so then we took all of that elegant data, and then we kind of applied it um, around the country and saw where we would fit. And so we call these HerMD cities. And so I can tell you the ones that we are planning on opening this year um, because we've already signed some leases. So our next locations are going to be Nashville, Tennessee, Carmel, Indiana, and Charlotte, North Carolina, and then New Jersey. Um, We've looked at a couple cities in New Jersey, Summit, Montclair, um, haven't isolated the one yet. We have a couple of top contenders and we'll probably know by the end of the month where in New Jersey we will be. So those are the next ones. And so that those are the types of cities that we're looking at. And, you know, for instance, in Nashville, we're going to be in Franklin, or, or Franklin, Tennessee specifically. And so these cities that are not necessarily downtown, more like in a suburb where there's easy parking, you know, thinking about a traditional HRMD patient who wants to get in and out, and, but can still pull from the larger size, you know, city and support the HerMD. And so it's pretty exciting. Congratulations. That's very exciting to see something you built start to take bloom in other surrounding cities all over the U.S. You mentioned this traditional HerMD patient archetype, and I'm curious if you can describe for listeners at a high level what that HerMD patient looks like to you. And if you see this model evolving as you get more consumer adoption or more insurance buy-in or employer buy-in for some of the services that HerMD offers. I definitely see it evolving as we continue to grow for sure. I mean, typically right now we see anyone from 13 on and we see them for everything from pimples to your first pap smear to abnormal bleeding. I think the median age or the average age um, I should say, is about 43 years young at her MD. So we're definitely catching women in perimenopause and menopause. That seems to be you know, our target audience. But we definitely, maybe because of the spa, maybe because we talk about sexual health, we're definitely pulling in those women in their 20s and 30s. And we find that they are um, much more open and pushing the conversations about, tell me about menopause, tell me what's going to happen to me. And they're wanting to talk about their sexual health. And there doesn't seem to be as much um, taboo, stigma, or shame with that population. So I definitely see us trending even younger as there is more um, education out there about menopause and sexual health. And as we expand, and yes, that is the plan. Eventually, we are going to expand our offerings to employers. Yet another thing that we are you know, building as a startup, because there is definitely a cost savings with HerMD 
I just read an article this morning about the significant delay specifically in gynecologic services. And, you know, that costs employers if a patient's bleeding or anemic or, you know, like the 900,000 women that left the workforce in the UK because of menopausal symptoms, if they can't work, employers are losing money. And if her MD can get them in within a week or a day or whatever, you know, the agreement ends up being, then think about number one, the difference that you're making in that patient's life, right? No delays to care. But then number two, proving, because that's what you have to do, proving that value to the employers and what you're saving them um, with your offerings. So eventually we will expand into that. So I do see us trending um, younger. And another thing you touched on is this broader ecosystem issue with lack of attention or perhaps not sufficient focus on female health issues, whether it's menopause or sexual health. I'm thinking specifically about these drugs that actually treat some of these conditions that people don't know about. Instead, you see commercials for Viagra or other erectile dysfunction treating drugs that are much more ubiquitous. And so as you think about her MD's position within this broader healthcare ecosystem, do you think about partnering with others to actually elevate the end-to-end value chain when it comes to addressing some of these issues that pertain to women, whether it's with drug companies or with med tech providers, or even partnering with hospital systems and traditional provider systems to raise the awareness as a broader system? So we definitely have brand partnerships uh, right now. So people that we work with that are like-minded, um, whether it's you know like the White Dress Project, which is non-for-profit, but getting the word out there about fibroid awareness. So we've definitely done that. I've worked with you know companies like Women S. I also sit on medical advisory boards for companies. I am a speaker for a lot of pharmaceutical companies. So we've done that. We are talking to a couple of companies that would that we could partner with that would allow us to complete the cycle of care and offer more ancillary services. I can't touch on who those are right now, but those are definitely in the works because the value in that is amazing. As everyone is building their own, you know, subsets and being hyper-focused. And then just even thinking about some of the companies that are offering integrative patient monitoring and labs. And, you know, can we bring some of that in there to HerMD, allowing us to use that data, especially for our telehealth patients, and just inputting that right into our uh, software and our EHR. So we are definitely having those conversations um, with a lot of like-minded brands, whether it is educational, whether it's monitoring. And then we've launched our own um, e-commerce. So, or we'll be launching our own e-commerce. We are selling some of these products, um, sexual health care products, menopause products in the offices, and they will also be available to telehealth patients um, eventually. So this is our soft launch. We will be launching this into e-commerce because there's a real lack of physician curated products, right? People come in and say, Dr. Javed, I don't know what over-the-counter, you know, will help me in addition to the medication um, that you've prescribed. And the patient brought in happy hoo-ha cream the other day. And I was like, stop buying this, you know? She's like, it's not helping. I'm like, then, then don't use it anymore. And so I've um, partnered with the companies that I believe are bringing value, education, are ethical, the branding is not offensive, the products are safe, and that's something that I would buy myself. Uh, those are what are going to be offered at uh, her MD. Congratulations also on the latest Series A round. It's fantastic to see that traction from the venture capital community and investment community. In an industry where female founders only receive roughly 2% of VC funding, and on top of that being a female founder of color, I can only imagine the numbers are even lower for what percentage of VC funding you specifically may receive. Can you speak about just what it was like to get VC adoption and if you experienced any unique challenges given your background and how you see the VC funding landscape potentially shifting or supporting more female founders or female founders of color? I was terrified. <laughs> but I firmly believe if you're not scared uh, every couple of years in your career, you're, you're not growing, right? I was told that, frankly, that you're too old. You're from the Midwest. 
um, you are a minority woman. Uh, the exact figure I was given was 0.37% chance. That's what you have, less than a half percent. Well, think about it. Less than 2% goes to women. You add minority, you add Midwest, you add my age. I was well into my 40s. And so I, I had people not trying to discourage me, but I think they were just trying to be very honest, you know, and because I was so excited. I'm a dreamer. I'm a visionary. I'm a disruptor. And so, and it, I don't take no for an answer, but I think all of my friends and, and people who've been through this before are like, it's, it's not going to be great for you. And, and we're just preparing you. And then I was like, okay. And so our funding round went um, surprisingly easily. And I think at that point, um, VCs were, it was shifting from just all about the numbers to storytelling. And so for them, I was a window into what is truly help happening in the healthcare market, right? They knew I had been seeing patients for 20 years. And so most of the people we met were lovely and listened. You know, some were like, yeah, we're not ready for this. Like, this is great, but this is, we were more looking for a quick digital solution or, you know, you're not a great fit for us. But so many were like, this may not be a great fit, but let me introduce you to these 10 more who are, you are exactly what they are looking for. And um, it went pretty quickly. I mean, we were done with the full rounds. We started the process at the end of April and we were closed by August. And so we had our offers and our term sheets um, end of June, early July. So it was pretty quick. And what are your near term plans for how you plan on deploying this funding? So our founding team was myself, Kamel Caruso, our chief growth officer, and then Kathy Lai, our chief strategy officer. We were the executive team, middle management, upper management, and I was still seeing patients uh, four to five days a week. And so we had to build a ton of infrastructure. We brought on um, a very seasoned CEO, Kathy McAleer, who um, was at Zoom Care. And so we've spent, we ha- now have a site director, we now have a head of peoples. So a lot of it was building up our infrastructure to where we need it to be to truly grow and grow well, right? I, what is most important to me that we hold the same standards of care at every HerMD and the experience is the same and it doesn't get watered down. And so we're going to do it right. So that, and then, you know, the build out. So all of these locations, brick and mortar is expensive. And then when you talk about all these devices, I'm talking about surgery and ultrasound and lasers, it's costly. And so the build out and the right people is where that first um, round is going. I want to pivot now to general industry projections and kind of looking forward at the upcoming months and years how do you think the female healthcare specifically focused sector will change in, in the next few months to a year? I think we're about to blow the ceiling off of this. I mean, if you look at the numbers, we're talking about an industry in just sexual healthcare that's going to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Women are wanting solutions. They're willing to spend money. They have disposable income you know, to take care of these issues. And we're talking about lifestyle and things that can adversely affect women and pull them out of their marriages or their careers way too early. And so they're going to spend the money on this to have better quality of life. And so, and I think VCs are much more apt to listen to female founders, um, understanding our unique perspective. And so I think we're going to see even more funding. I know for me already, the inbound inquiries, I can't keep up with them anymore. So it's not me reaching out to people saying, hey, do you want to invest eventually in a future round? It's, you know, we saw you, we love you, we want to meet with you, we love what HerMD is doing, please keep us in mind for your next round. And so I think for us, you know, going through that already, it's going to make it a lot easier. But I also think it's going to make it a lot easier for other women and other healthcare companies who are trying to do what I'm doing because now we've set an example, right? Tia broke that barrier by doing that $100 million round. Maven's got, what, a billion-dollar valuation. And so, and now her MD has joined the ranks of, hey, they did it. It's a small company from Cincinnati. You know, we can do it too. So I think the funding is going to continue to increase because the gender disparity is still just too great. Do you see a proliferation in a lot of 
startups and incumbents trying to solve the same issue as fragmenting the industry too much? Or do you think actually the introduction of more players into the industry, all trying to solve the same problem, is ultimately going to be beneficial for elevating female healthcare in the U.S.? I think at some point it's going to be too much and not everyone is going to survive. Um, I think some people are trying to get into it because it's hot and they don't have a true understanding of the patient or of the medicine or of the science or even of the market. So I think we will see those people disappear, the pseudoscientists, the ones that are trying to come up with gimmicky solutions. But no, you know, as a provider, it's not just the drugs. It's not just the surgery. It's not just the lasers. It is a multidisciplinary approach. And so I can see women coming to her MD, but then also using an app, right, for menopause support. My dear friend, Lindsay Harper, you know, she started Rosie Wellness and uh, we don't see each other as competitors. She's like, I'm not doing brick and mortar. I tell my patients about her app all the time. So I think it's really nice because it confirms that there is such a need in this space. I think it's fun to watch what everyone else is doing because I think it inspires us. I think it's created this amazing family of support. I've always looked for mentors and I finally see mentors that look like me, um, which is really, really nice. And we build each other up. So I think those that are mission-driven and have an understanding will survive. The ones that are doing it for the wrong reasons will not. And finally, as a startup founder yourself, do you have any general entrepreneurial advice for others who may be interested in starting their own companies based on your personal experience and the challenges and opportunities that you experienced? Yes. So surround yourself with like-minded people. Surround yourself with people who have gifts where you have gaps. Do not let the detractors take away real estate in your head. It's too precious. And don't take no for an answer. <laughs>